Hello and welcome in to the last episode of the Esports Network podcast. For the last time, I'm your host, Mitch Reeds, and thank you all for listening to this show. Whether it's your first episode or your 195th, I appreciate every single one of you for tuning in to the various conversations that we have had on this show. It's been a lot of fun interviewing people all around the esports industry. And it's just been an absolute pleasure. I've learned a lot doing these discussions, and I hope our audience has really enjoyed it during the last two years as well. My next step, which I'm announcing right here for the first time, is at Nerd Street Gamers. I plan to accept an offer uh, that will take me to do some writing, some podcast hosting, uh, potentially some other work around the growing company Uh, that's currently doing the Valorant Champions Tour and some other tournaments, some venue operations. So I'm very excited to be joining the talented staff over at Nerd Street Gamers. But first, we have a final episode for y'all, and it's going to be an absolute banger. I am talking to one of my great friends in the esports industry, Mr. Adam Fitch, the UK Esports Journalist of the Year in 2019 and finalist for the Esports Awards Journalist of the Year in 2020. We worked together at Esports Insider, where he was the lead editor, and he is now at Deserto as the website's biz content lead. Adam, my friend, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And first off, I just want to say congratulations on the job. You're obviously very deserving. And... Um... Nerd Street uh, continuing their kind of streak of hiring great people. So that's great to see. I've uh, been following Nerd Street for probably two, two and a half years at this point, And it seems like um, they're only getting better and better. So it's, it seems like a great fit for both parties. Really happy for you both. Thank you, Adam. And he was the one that connected me. He's too modest. He connected me with their VP of media like back in the fall, uh, which started these discussions, started me being a freelancer for them for the last few months where I've done a lot of player profiles, really enjoyed the content I've been able to create for them. So uh, when they offered me a full-time role, it was a knockdown decision. And I owe it to Adam for making that initial connection because he's just a good guy. (laughs) Well, the the thing is with that, I make the connection, but it's up to you to put in the work, right? And to actually reach out and, and do everything. So I don't know how much credit I can take. I mean, if, if I connected you and you did crap work, they wouldn't want, want you full time. So <laughs> you, you can you can say I'm modest, but realistically, I think you're being modest. Well, hey, I appreciate that. And that gets right towards sort of the state of the conversation we're planning to have today, which is the state of esports media, our experiences in and around it uh, during our time. Going to be pretty no holds barred here. You know, it's my last show with Esports Network, so I don't really have a ton of of barriers going on right now, but (laughs) uh, it's going to be a fun look at it. And it kind of gets into that, like, how do you get in the room? What do you do to uh, separate yourself from the crowd in this space that we work in? So a little background of me, I'm sure y'all know it about 195 episodes in, but during my time at Esports Media, I published articles about 15 publications, ranging from the Washington Post launcher to Break the Game, where I first wrote about the most expensive decks in Hearthstone history, and that is completely wiped from the internet now. You'll notice that happens quite a bit uh, with the smaller esports media sites. I've talked with Michael B. Jordan about Call of Duty, and I wrote 300 articles on Twitch drama in Fortnite, which was just farming clickbait. I like to think I have a fairly (laughs) wide-ranging experience so far in my time in esports media. And our goal is to talk about the state of esports media, our experiences within it, some of the challenges faced by people in this industry, and where we see it going. So some disclaimers before we start. We're going to talk pretty pointedly about covering our experiences and want to make it clear that we don't mean a slight to anyone or any company we might mention. I'm not entirely sure what 
we're going to mention. Uh, we think it's important to talk about this world in the hopes that the industry gets better and gets more stability, but also talking about the inherent challenges that have prevented it from reaching that point. So Adam, any disclaimers you want in at the top of the show before we get into it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if I speak badly of a company, then it's because I don't rate them very highly. Um, and that's it. So uh, there are a lot of people I res- The thing is, I don't have to like people to respect them and I don't have to really rate their work to respect them as people. So I, I think there are a lot of people who are perhaps inflated in their position in the industry versus what they've produced. Um, and I, I'll be honest about that. And I, I don't know. And the thing is, I, I'm not here to just like be inflammatory and just destroy everyone. But like, I'm just going to be honest. And a lot of people don't like that normally. But what's the point in the conversation if we're not going to be candid? And, and it's a conversation I don't think uh, many people could do justice because they're afraid and they're more willing to preserve relationships than to tell the truth in pursuit of better. So, yeah, that, that's my disclaimer. I mean everything I say. Yeah, that's a that's a great disclaimer, and it gets into the 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 whole discussion of why esports media, in particular, is a pretty tough challenge. I think you you bring up the first great point, which is okay. People are afraid. What are they afraid of? And a lot of it comes back to well, the developers hold all this all the keys in esports, right? There's five companies that control the games, that control your access to the players. Uh, they control the stories, and there's some people that can get around that, can tell stories that aren't as favorable. But in general, Riot Games, Activision Blizzard, Ubisoft, Epic Games, uh, EA, those are basically behind the biggest esports out there, and they hold a lot of keys. Especially, you know, this is also a big problem in games journalism as well. With people, if you give a negative review to something, you might not be reviewing that developer's games going forward. So. This is kind of a an industry-wide issue. Is that what you meant when you were talking about, hey, people are scared to piss people off? I, I think somewhat. And I, I also think people, uh, how do I put this? Like, they the relationships are good as a journalist, right? Obviously, you need your sources and such. But <clears throat> people would rather keep in the good graces of people um, because it could benefit them in the future, rather, uh, in, in uh, I guess, in place of being honest. So... If I have really good friends at a company, but I think the company's doing something wrong, or I know if the company's doing something wrong, I'll report about that regardless of my relationship with the people. And hopefully they will understand that it is my job and that it's not necessarily a slight on them as, as people. So I, I think there are times where companies and people are protected because of these relationships with writers and so-called journalists. Um, but of, of course, as well, um, the industry is controlled from the top down by, by a few. And like if you think about Tencent's ownership, uh, it's probably 10 cent runs 50% of the industry, if, if not 60, 70%, even in terms of like the developers who, who own the games. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a tough one. But luckily in my role in like the business side of things, I don't need access to players or teams necessarily. I just need like two good sources at any one place about a situation and I'm fine. I don't, I don't necessarily hinge. Um, my work doesn't necessarily hinge on access as much as say, someone who does League of Legends content who needs access to the players from the LEC because that's their beat. Um, so maybe it's because I'm in a unique position. Or I say unique because not many people are covering the business side, really. But um, I, I just think people are more likely to do things that work in their favor rather than upholding integrity and, and doing things for the, the greater good. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. And as one of the other business journalists, yeah, it's a it's not a massive group of journalists in esports no. covering this side, and it does empower you to do a little bit more of like, hey, we have to cover this. At the same time, the esports network podcast is very much a business focused podcast, mm-hmm. and I softballed quite a bit of my interviews on this show. I, I'll say that up front, like like right now, I will say that I softballed a lot of interviews, and a big part of that is because. I don't have a necessarily stable long-term income. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not to, that's not a slight on esports network at all. They actually gave me the most stable income that I'd ever had in esports media. I was still a freelancer, so I was still doing work at other places during this time. But a lot of these interviews, it's very difficult to hardline when you're at a place in esports where you don't feel like you are at a stable long-term position and mm-hmm. it can be hard to feel like you're burning bridges or you're holding people to account consistently and constantly as you talk to those people when you don't know if in two years they might be uh, somebody who holds the key to get you the next step or the next job you want at least that was something that i struggled with a decent yeah. amount and, and at the same time you could talk things out like i think i got better and better but especially in my early days you know, when I was writing articles for 50 bucks, it I, it just wasn't worth it for me to build, to burn a bridge. For sure. And, and I mean, in terms of like full-time employment and and, and, and against freelancing, I guess, like the, the people who are full-time in esports media, a lot of times are kind of the SEO farmers, like grunt work, not so that they hold a, a valuable kind of space in the industry, right? Because they actually make up a lot of the viewership and, and readership. But uh, you tend to see, so like Deserto, for example, I think we've probably got like 80 employees and probably 60, 65 are on the casual kind of news beat and SEO beat as opposed to investigating work. So for them, they've got a stable income, but for the people, not necessarily myself, I got into full-time work quite quick, but say like a Richard Lewis, for example, or a Thorin, they tend to do work on a freelance basis and just flip between publications. So there was VP, then Deserto, and Thorin's with what Pinnacle, and he's done some Esports Heaven stuff and some Dot .esports bits. Like they they float around, the ones who do more long-form original work. Um, whereas, yeah, it's, it's the, how do I put it? It's, it's the people who are willing to do the nitty-gritty, maybe mundane following like a news beat whether it's league or streamers or something they, they tend to have the reliability uh so they can kind of coast through it whereas yeah when i was freelancing and, and while you've been freelancing you you do have to be somewhat careful to not burn bridges if you're thinking ahead like that um but i myself i've always just been the kind of person where it's like look like i'm gonna stick to my ethics here and it's like even if I'm freelancing for a company and I find out they're corrupt, I will publish an article on their website and save a copy and publish it elsewhere. When it inevitably gets taken down, I'll put it up on Medium or whatever. That's just always how I've operated. And I even told eSports inside of that as I was working full-time there as well. So I've always kind of tried to hold those standards above anything else, uh, above like what's in my best interest at least. But it's, it's tough to expect that, off of, uh, expect that from everybody who works in this in this field, I guess. It It is very difficult, and it also does pay dividends. I think you'd hear a very similar answer from Jacob Wolf as well if he talked about sort of his perspective on this. And I think publications do recognize that, and actually people recognize people who are willing to speak out about it. It could be 
scary to do that without a safety net, but it is pretty crucial to your journalistic integrity and your journalistic ethics. And there are quite a few journalists who have done that, have taken those extra steps, have had opinions, mm-hmm. have shared their take, but like, hey, this is wrong or bad. And it's allowed them to progress uh, quite mm-hmm. a bit in their careers. But at the same time, as somebody who was doing it, it feels, it can feel dangerous. It depends on the situation, of course. But uh, here's here's one example from my career. I wrote an article for The Verge uh, about last winter, uh, and it was about Loaded, the talent a- management agency that represents uh, Ninja and Shroud and Courage and Dr. Lupo and a bunch of other uh, major streamers. And they were pretty instrumental in creating the talent war between the different streaming platforms. Twitch, oh, yeah, they Mixer. basically manufactured the, the streaming wars to benefit themselves. <laughs> yeah. They they gave the 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 streamers basically a collective bargaining uh, that that allowed them to break up Twitch's monopoly by assuring that mm-hmm. hey, you go first, Ninja. Then Shroud's going to follow. Then Courage is going to go to YouTube, and you know there's going to be a domino effect here. And now we all know how that ended up playing out. Mixer shuts down. Twitch basically regains all its market share. But at the same time, that was in large part by Loaded, and that's the article I wrote. How a talent management mm-hmm. agency. Uh, helped organize a war between some of the biggest companies in in tech and they didn't love that because they still work with twitch constantly so they didn't like Uh the framing that that was was going to be it's like they they came back they pushed back on the initial article i talked to the editor we're like no we stand by this okay great there it goes so that it's it's a verge i get paid by verge that's it well i don't get any loaded pitches for the last year shocking how that how that one works out and so Uh it that's just kind of, and they control many of the top streamers that exist in in esports. And I still have, you know, I, I've talked to some of the people over there at Loaded, there at Pop Dog, and they don't hate me by any means. But when it comes to PR and who they're going to reach out to, I went from being around the top of their list to down at the bottom of their list off of one mm-hmm. article. And so you, you have to make those calculations pretty constantly uh, as you're freelancing, especially. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I've I've got that in place, that kind of dynamic at the moment in place with Activision Blizzard, with uh, PUBG, which is Crafton now, I think. Um, EA is very likely soon, um, based on things happening at the moment. So uh, yeah, I'm kind of uh, cut off in a sense, but look, like they send it to um, Deserto's press email address, so I still get them in a sense. So it's not actually worked out for them very well. But yeah, it's, it's a risk. it's a risky take, right? Um, if you want to do that, it's, it's up to you. You can either like suppress what you believe uh, to be the truth or a really interesting insight or um, an angle no one's really looked at, or you can choose to keep the peace and suppress yourself in a sense. And I, I'm not really about that. I've never been about suppressing myself. And and we've said how like it can work against you, but it can also work in your favor as well if you are outspoken and, and point out um, things worth what, what you believe is worth pointing out. So I was very vocal for the first two and a half years in my esports journalist career and that that paid off because people knew I was serious about what I was doing and I wasn't afraid of anyone or anything in a sense like I'll talk out about anyone and esports inside like that Deserto like that and that's the, I think basically the reason Deserto hired me because I'm opinionated and and you don't really get that too often so I think you just have to be somewhat sensible about it um, maybe you have to have the right kind of personality and the right tact and approach to it as well to be honest with you because um, you can kind of either come off as like old man shouts at clouds you know what i mean like the simpsons <laughs> meme or yeah. you can come across as like a, a critic someone who stands for the truth and someone who see, sees through bullshit 
so there, there is a way to play it. And yeah, when you, when you are freelance, it's scary. Cause I mean, at one point I was freelancing maybe four or five websites at a time, probably about a year into my career. And, um, not, not through being let go or anything, but, uh, one of the publications closed and another one, their freelance budget shrank, I believe, uh, in the space of like two weeks. And I was earning 3000 pounds a month, which is pretty fucking good in esports. And it, I lost 1300 of that in the space of two weeks. And I might like, and th- those were outside of my control, but it could have very easily been someone going, oh, we don't like how vocal this Adam guy is. He's costing our relationships with X, Y, and Z. Let's get rid of him. And I could have lost way more than that and then had to look elsewhere um, to, to get jo- get a job immediately so I can afford my bills and such. Like there, there is a kind of balance there. And it is, it is dangerous, I'd say, <laughs> in a sense. But I mean, that, that's, in my opinion, at least, like part of the game and, and what you sign up for when you enter the world of journalism, whether it's in esports or anything else, really. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, we all knew that that's what journalism was going to entail uh, to a certain degree, and especially mm-hmm. in esports. You're in a young industry that has a lot of weird stuff happening behind the scenes, choosing my words <laughs> carefully here, uh, that is sketchy. And I think we all, we both have things that we know or we've heard that definitely can't be reported on. And so mm-hmm. there's... Uh, it, it's an interesting industry and esports, especially uh, that that's what makes the esports media game. So interesting is it's esports journal is so crucial for this industry to uh, talk about the bad actors, to really highlight what the hell is going on in this industry uh, to separate the bullshit from the real at the mm-hmm. same time, esports media publications are so underfunded and often backed by some of the biggest companies in this space that you run into an issue where you can't necessarily do that reporting either because you don't have the safety net or because someone's telling you, Hey, no, you can't cover that for this reason, which brings Mm -hmm. us to the next big topic, which is conflict of interest concerns. And I think these exist at just about every single major website, some more so or less so than others. Um, you know, I'll be completely upfront. I promise that at the top of this, I'm going to work at Nerd Street Gamers and I haven't entirely learned what that role. I haven't had anything dictated to me or given to me on this front, but they do run Riot Games competitions. And I'm expecting that, you know, at the very outset, I have to recognize that is a conflict of interest. In some- and another one, like Comcast, Spectacle, co-own Nerd Street, and they also yeah. run uh, T1. They also run Philly Fusion. So like there are potential conflicts there as well, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's the reality of it. And I think that's true for almost every esports media. I don't mean that as a slight to Nerd Street. They've never told me no. anything about how that might impact my reporting. As far as I've heard, I have full journalistic uh, ability. But those conflict of interest concerns exist at most publications. And they exist in sports as well. ESPN is pretty famously for uh, suspending people who criticize the NFL for example. So I, it's not to say that this is a esports only situation, no, but it no. is one that is pretty constant in esports. Adam, your perspective, I know you've been tweeting about conflict of interest concerns. Uh, what are some yeah. of the ones that you want to highlight? Yeah, I mean, so Enthusiast Gaming um, purchased Upcomer, which is like a, it was a defunct publication that just fucked over loads of people basically. But um, so they've purchased Upcomer and are reviving it. And basically, they run Luminosity, Seattle Surge, Vancouver Titans in in the uh, CDL and Overwatch League, um, respectively. And and so they're going to be running a publication while operating three teams and 
think they've got agencies and everything else under the sun as well. Uh, that within itself is a concern. And a lot of people say you have to wait until they do something untoward to slight them. But it's like, no, the fact that this very potential exists is the actual problem because how do we know um, what you're going to do? Like you, you could, you just basically give yourself free press whenever the fuck you want, if you wish, because the same people are running all of those entities. And I mean, I'm trying to think like DeSerto used to have Optic Hex as a, a minority shareholder. He divested, I think, a couple of years ago, maybe three now or something. But um, that was, of course, a conflict. And especially because they were covering Call of Duty a lot, right? And that's where Optic, like, thrived. So you could see how that would always seem like a conflict of interest. Um, stuff like uh, the Esports Observer um, used to be owned, or at least partly owned by Bitcraft, who, like, invest, is an investment firm and fund, a <laughs> venture capital right. fund that invests in however many companies, including StoryMob, which is a PR f- firm, who Observer break um embargoes all the time and uh, quite often on story mob pieces and they as far as i can tell have never been penalized you know what i mean i can't say for sure but it certainly seems uh coincidental if nothing else to me uh, so so i think there are examples for a lot of them uh, i think esports insider is actually one of the only unbiased publications in terms of conflicts of interest like there's nothing that's inherently tying them to another company besides their ownership with a co- with a company sbc which doesn't even operate in esports um apart from that i think there are probably some shady ties in almost all of them like vp sports and lgd for example they were owned by the same company uh it's it's pretty rife throughout the the entire industry and and i kind of think because the industry is still young people are trying to get in where they can and we as an industry welcome all of the investment that we can get uh so i can see how thing these things occur and happen but it just it seems like most people don't really care about the inherent risk there they just think it's not a big issue um, which I mean just morally and ethically just doesn't make sense to me, but most people don't think about things <laughs> um, outside of the ways that it affects them or doesn't seem to affect them, you know? Yeah, you know, it's 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 a it's a double-edged sword here. And I also do have to shout out Esports Network because it is completely mm-hmm. independent and funded entirely by our CEO, Mark Timmick. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. uh, there's never been any limitation on what I could cover that he's asked me over the last two years and there isn't any backing tied to any other esports organization but there the double-edged sword of that and you you did that too at esi is the publications that have money that can offer a lot more stability long term uh Uh generally are the ones that are backed by a bigger company nerd street gamers uh, not the Xerto as, as much, but uh, quite no, a few all, other actually. ones, Upcomer. Um, and so, you know, Dexerto's paid a lot of journalists, has been one of the consistent sources of uh, how you find your first living wage in esports journalism. Mm-hmm. It was for me, was was part-time work at Dexerto, provided a baseline that allowed me to actually have a living wage in this space. And so uh, that's kind of the double-edged sword. The creation of Upcomer just got a bunch of journalists paid. And a bunch of journalists in uh, roles that, you know, is a really great pos- and a, with a really great team. Um, and so that's that's a double-edged sword right there. Is It's like, okay, can journalists afford to not take any job that has some perceived conflict of interest? The answer might be yeah. yes, but with how many yeah. of them exist, it's kind of hard. And, and most people, rightfully, or rightfully or wrongfully, depending on how you look at it, are out for themselves first and first first and foremost right like you kind of have to make sure your house is in order before you can attend to the rest of the world 
Um, so I, right. I can understand it. And, and interestingly, um, besides a spot of angel investing at the start, Deserto is still um, has been funded by the four founders who own, I think it's something like 80, 90% of the company still overall. So that's really interesting. And they're actually the biggest publication in, in the industry as well. So that's yeah. a very interesting like unicorn case, not, not like they're a billion dollar valuation, but in the sense that they're very unique in that sense, they're probably the least funded um, of the big publications and the, they're the most successful, uh, depending on how you want to look at it. I guess they'd probably have the highest valuation, but in terms of readership and such, I think they, uh, we get something like 60 million um, re- readers or something like that, <laughs> like 60 million um, article views a month or something like that. It's, it's insane. Um, so that, that's an interesting case. But yeah, I mean, you, you can't be too picky when there's only maybe six or seven publications that can actually afford to give you anything um, worth sniffing at. It is tough. Uh, and I do think I've been quite lucky with the, the full-time employment. Whether the pay's been great or not is another, another matter. It, it got me by and allowed me to do the work I wanted to do. So, so that's good. Uh, and I know other people are not always going to have been in the same situation. So I have to be careful with how I judge it. But I do think people, I don't know, I think a lot of the esports journalists are glorified fans who just want to get close to the teams and the players that they love as opposed to actually wanting to um, stand for something. That is kind of a, one of the, I don't want to necessarily call it an issue with esports journalism because I think there's a lot of duality with a lot of those people. But yeah, when you get to, you know, how you ask questions and how players are treated, I think the other, the flip side of that coin is like, yeah, generally people want to ask like these puff pieces towards players, but they also don't necessarily have the ability to dig in the way that a traditional sports media room would do it. I think just now are some places getting better and riot games actually did a a much better job of this at at worlds where the losing team has to go sit up there and listen to questions and they'll get asked tough questions and that's part of their responsibility i remember going Uh to uh, a c a cwl um event and i my whole story i was i was writing for the national football post at the time and one of the teams um Oh, why am I forgetting the name? Uh, Rise Nation uh, is backed by Roger Saffold, who's a uh-huh. uh, NFL player. And so my whole goal is to talk to them. Well, they lost. They didn't show up in the media room. I was just there sitting there the whole time. And they're like, oh, yeah, they're out for a smoke break. And they never came back. And I was like, wait, this is how this works? Like, I, I flew out to Columbus, Ohio to interview them. And they're just <laughs> not made available. Like, so that's the... <clears throat> The flip side, which is that a lot of journalists have been pushed into doing positive fluff piece stories because the only uh-huh. players available to them are the winning players. And so that naturally pushes a more positive narrative. And the losing players have not been asked to to speak to the media or been allowed to just kind of not do it. Um, and so I think that's had an impact on the way that people read stories, especially player profiles. I agree. And I think also... A lot of players are socially awkward nerds. So like getting any sort of flair or zest out of them in interviews is pretty bloody tough as it is, especially um outside of a select few COD players, for example. Like it's it's just it's like getting rocking or shit trying to get anything of worth out of them. So I think there's an obligation on the team front and the player front themselves really to to be interesting 
<laughs> and know what they're doing yeah. because that benefits the teams, the players themselves. If they have a lot of good press and people want to interview them and they give them good work to publish, then that, that does benefit them as well, of course. So I think that side's probably missing quite a bit. And, and we're seeing like more like po- like uh, post-game conferences and post-match conferences and stuff now, which I just don't see the point of because like nobody really gets a unique article out of it. And I do hope that disappears, but it's the easiest way to wrangle everyone in a room and a lot time to journalists by just banding them all in one room. And I think um, uh, Riot Games are probably doing that quite a bit uh, at the moment, if I remember correctly. Yeah, post-game rooms don't give the best, but I think they're an important opportunity for people to be with a bunch of other journalists and feel empowered to start asking a little more difficult questions. Yeah. um, Hopefully, but... Yeah, they it, it, the end game is like you all end up writing the same story because it doesn't matter who. And it's the same thing in sports as well because whoever whatever mm-hmm. quote is good, people end up running with and turning around and then it's all the same game. So that that, that does happen in sports as well. But it's like, I, I think it's mostly important as a journalistic exercise, mostly to, to put them up in front of the journalists and be like, hey, we're bringing them to the journalists. And then you mentioned one of my big pet peeves in this industry, which is that there is some level of media training that happens to most esports players, but it feels like it stops at the crisis comms point, which is like, don't say <laughs> too much. Just uh, talk. Either they're not comfortable or they're just like being told not to answer in depth. And the media training that should be done is like, here's how you tell a good story with the press. Here's how you answer a question. You give them something that allows them to tell your story in a way that actually matters and right now it's just like no comment Uh, the the amount of interviews i've done i'm like that there's nothing usable in that Mm -hmm. like uh it's it's been tough a couple couple episodes that i never published on this show with players where it's just like you you gave me absolutely nothing it was just me asking questions to a brick wall like i'm not i'm not publishing that and that's you know most of my experience talking to esports players yeah yeah for for sure And and actually as well i think and this is a little bit off topic, but it's just made me think of it. Um, when it when it comes to like recording podcasts and such in esports, I think the art of conversation is lost. It just uh, podcasts are actually just audio interviews a lot of the time instead of like genuine conversation. And if you look at all the most popular podcasts in the world, whether it's Joe Rogan, Joe Budden, whatever it may be, it's conversation. And it's like, well, maybe not likable personalities, but interesting personalities, difficult conversations, interesting, entertaining conversations, whatever it may be, but something genuine and not just, what do you think of this? How do you feel about this? What about this? Okay. And what did you do when this happened? You know what I mean? I I think we're, we're occupying all of the spaces in media in in terms of esports, like we're doing everything that other um, industries are doing media wise, but we're just not doing, we're, we're very wide, but we're not very deep. I think we're very surface level with a lot of coverage, um, but it's hard to justify a lot of the deep work at the moment because of the lack of readership in esports. So we're kind of forced into just doing the shallow um, trending pieces a lot of the time to gather the views. And it's hard to get uh, companies who want to invest into the work that they know won't bring a return uh, monetarily, but can make a dent within the, the community and the kind of esports culture, I guess. And that, that definitely pulls up the next uh, subject we have to talk about. One Ooh. thing on the podcasting front of somebody who's done this for two full years now, um, quite a few people would hesitate or I had people pull out when I wouldn't give them questions going into the show. Yeah, I, yeah. I would go into these shows with 
three topics and like a question I wanted to ask under them and keep mm-hmm. it open in yep. a sense that because I want to I want to follow up your answer. My goal is to not. Hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what what happened here? If I'm too structured, the show becomes boring in my personal yes. opinion. So yeah, I, that's that's the formula I worked out is if I write down context, but not questions, then the end result is a lot better. Because the context yeah. is going to take me to the topics I want to discuss, like a question would. But it's not just insert answer here, insert answer here. So I think that's kind of the the key, actually. But not too many people have figured that out yet from what I listen to. And, and to be completely frank, I don't listen to many esports podcasts uh, anymore because, I, I again, I just think they're bland and anyone can do them. I, and, and whether you like Thorin or not, like he's successful at what he's doing and he is a good conversationalist and he does craft the questions well based on the context and based on how the, the person acts. So he probably actually gets the best out of people a lot of the time. Uh, even these awkward players who don't really <laughs> know what they're doing when it comes to linguistics, you know? Um, and <laughs> I, I think wh- whether, whether you like him or not, there's something to learn there. Um, him and LS and uh, dominate uh, Richard Lewis, you know, all the, the people you'd expect a great conversationalists, And then the rest, even me, when I, did mine for my my podcast for probably a year or something. It was it was bland looking back. Uh, so yeah, I, th- I think we could do a lot to to deepen um, the the media that we offer. But we, companies unfortunately need to see the return. I say unfortunately for the for the journalists and the producers of this content. It's unfortunate because it's it's a hard sell. I, I'm lucky because uh, business content doesn't do great view wise as a rule unless it's a big scoop or something or a one off piece. But DeSoto understand the value of establishing themselves in the corporate world and creating connections with companies and such, right? So um, the content I produce is like a gateway for that. And I'm very lucky. Like, I don't think they're expecting to recoup the money spent on me through my content. That's done by the, the trending kind of news SEO pieces that go out there that people take the piss out of all the time, even though they're basically essential. And the reason most esports publications fold because they don't engage in them. <laughs> right. It's uh, yeah, that's, that's a, there's, there's so many double-edged shorts because it's like you, Dixerto gets the, the, the slight from having those SEO content, but they have, that's what allowed it to be an independent publication free from yes. this conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's your that's your toss up is it's like is that what you prefer or would you prefer they're backed by uh, take your pick of of major organization that might impact the reporting. So mm-hmm. you talk about how log form content doesn't pay. This is the bane of my personal existence in esports <laughs> and is 100% accurate. It was shown uh in a very high profile example with ESPN shutdown because their statement said that Hey, the esports section was the most under-trafficked portion of it of the site relative to the resources, and a lot of esports content was long form. It was a lot more in depth. They had some of the best writers in esports at the time. They broke a lot of news, uh, and so even when produced at a high level, the esports content wasn't being trafficked. And now ESPN has some pretty high standards for what constitutes like good traffic, considering they're ESPN. But it really showed that hey a lot of this esports content is not justifying the investment. So it has to deliver a different benefit because it's not delivering enough ad revenue to justify what it costs to produce it. That's Uh just the core of it. So what other benefit does it have for our company or our site? I mean, I also think like the ESPN sales team were pretty shit. I didn't see many sponsors (laughs) on ESPN stuff, so I don't think they 
did their best either. I don't think they really necessarily understand esports and the language that it uses and the quirks that it has and just how community driven it is and the kind of things that the community responds to. So I, I probably think it was a poor effort all around. But but to be honest with you, I, I I do believe that the traffic would have been low for the long form content. And that's when you saw them switch and had like Jacob Wolf, one of the best journalists we've got, especially like long form investigative pieces just doing puff news pieces all the time and then stretching him thin by doing shitty videos as well and like taking them away from the one thing that made them stand out and then getting like Emily Rand to cover Call of Duty news for some reason, like instead of having her writing a narrative piece and such, like you you take people who are known for very specific things like Emily and and Theon for their their narrative uh, profile pieces, I guess, and Jacob for his investigative work and put them on other things. And then that just seems like a, double misstep <laughs> it makes no sense and, and also besides Arda you're forcing people who aren't naturals on camera sorry to the people listening but you're not um, and trying to make them engaging video personalities instead of getting people who are endemic and kind of understand and are, are established in that field already which then takes them away from the written work even more and that's you saw them get so desperate that they actually fucked up even more which is a very interesting thing considering they're like a legacy mainstream media brand who in reality, you should know how this shit works, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's it's an interesting one. I imagine they spent a lot of money on there, but I also don't think they utilized um, the, the people that they had as well as they could have. But likewise, and I, I've, I think I've said this publicly, I've definitely said it on a couple of podcasts before, and I know I've said it to you privately, but I think the ESPN name cr- added like a, a buff to a lot of the writers there. I say a lot, there's only like four mm. writers there, wasn't there? Um, besides Jacob, I think everybody got like a 50% revenue, uh, not revenue, a reputation boost because they were under the prestigious ESPN banner. Um, I think Jacob did a lot of good work. If you look at all his breaking news in the business world and like optic and such and, and echo Fox, as well as, um, all the roster moves for league of legends, like that stuff's invaluable. That stuff's great. And he was leading the way on that front. But then you look at what Emily and Fionn were doing, it's just like, it was a cold night on a Thursday and Faker was sat down eating noodles. He was preparing for him. It's like, 14-year-olds don't care about that. They care about personality and what the fuck's happening and drama and controversy. They don't care about Faker feeling like a slight bit of nerves before his world semifinals match. It's, I think it was just underserving what fans actually want and trying to say well we don't care what you want this is what you're getting giving them because with espn this is the best stuff like instead of it actually being the best stuff that's that's my take it's unpopular um but i I don't necessarily think the writing ability there was as great as a lot of people make out but of course that's an opinion based statement but i do stand by that entirely i i hear you i think i think fiat (laughs) and emily are both great writers i think what it it comes down to it and i agree with it is that they're uh, the ESPN masthead was overshadowing a lot of other great writers in this space mm-hmm. where it was like, oh, they're writing this fantastic player feature. So could so could a lot of other people. It's a lot of it was the ESPN access. It combined with the uh, the masthead. And, you know, they're sure. both great writers. I have I have no slight towards them. I think they they write some of the better player profiles, player features. But, yeah, it gets to the is that what works? Is that what people want? to hear about is it does it overlap with their audience as well as they're hoping it to uh, and that's kind of the the rub of it right there uh i mean success wise with traffic sorry to cut you off but like you would you would have 
you would have more success watching, say, Fake a Stream for a night, right? You'd have more success writing three articles based on things that he said or did during that League of Legends stream for five hours. You'd have more success on that than you would on a, a three-hour conversation with him in person discussing his ethos on the game and everything. Like, it's just how it is. People care more about, like, the virality and um, the trending stuff, in my opinion, at least. I think they'd have a lot more success, like, recapping streams than they would a sprawling profile piece. Um, and that's maybe that just misunderstanding up- the audience. No, that that brings up what I think is a really, really core point for all people in esports to realize, which is that it needs to center around the game or the stream or whatever it is, because uh, the further you pull somebody away from the game, right now people care much more about what happens in stream, Faker's thoughts on the meta versus mm-hmm. what he's feeling during a certain time and that's just the reality yeah. of esports content. or it's like pre-game ritual or something like people won't care about that as much as his opinions on drx or damn one or something you know it's just it, it's just the nature of how it is because this is entertainment at the end of the day yeah and that's that's what it revolves around and i think there's you know uh there's quite a bit in the like relationship of an a player with their org or with their teammates or with something else but the, the player's relationship with themselves is a little bit, uh, it, 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 it can be very hit or miss depending on the situation. Sometimes yes. these player profiles are great, um, but it's also why we've seen the rise of websites like in the traditional sports world, like the Players' Tribune, which tells a athlete's personal perspective from their perspective, from their writing, while it's mm-hmm. been helped by other people. And I think that's uh, a big difference. It is what made player profiles work so well. Now, that's not to say that they haven't been a lot of great player profiles in the sports world over the years, but in general, a lot of sports media has moved away from it uh, in quite a few different reasons because it's just not what's necessarily working and the players can tell a better story themselves. People want to know more about what's happening between the teams, what's happening within the games, and the further your content moves away from that, the less the audience is going to care about it. I agree. I, I think at least on like the less business businessy side of esports writing, um, writers would be better off treating it uh, esports as the WWE than they would like NFL or something. Yeah, I think I, I absolutely <laughs> agree with it. I, I think you lean into that. Like, that's what Deserto does, and it's eclipsing everyone else in traffic. Like it just makes a lot of sense, but you don't you don't see that, and and um, unless you're observer or insider. Like, you've got no excuses, really, in my opinion, to be focusing on that stuff. And I mean, there are a lot of narratives that are actually being missed out, and narratives work across the board. It's not just in an article, but it's on the broadcast, and it's on Twitter, and it's on Reddit. It's wherever the community is. Um, so the people who can, I guess, build, maybe not build, but like discover these narratives and shape them and feed into them on a consistent basis, I think that will pay off. So like, if there's a rivalry in Call of Duty, you're going to follow the shit out of that. If you're a fan of Call of Duty, so DeSerto will cover what Skump thinks of Slasher and then Slasher responds and then J-Cap weighs in, blah, blah, blah. Like, they care about all that stuff because it is still related to the game. It's like, no, your shit in the game and use the weapon that's been um, gentleman's agreement out of it, blah, 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 blah. And it goes back and forth that way. And that's, that'll bring in infinitely more views than how Skump warms up before the game and his, his mindset. What music does he listen to before he plays a game? You know what I mean? Like, it's... It's shallow stuff, but it works. And the shallow stuff pays for the, the deeper stuff. But if you're not doing the shallow stuff, then the deep stuff won't work, 
in my opinion. Oh, at least we haven't seen it really work yet by itself. It's true. There's been a lot of standalone things that have done, you know, pretty decent jobs of, of driving traffic, but on a consistent basis, the, the log mm-hmm. form after log form, it, I think the best time to do it is when you have the inspiration, you have an insight off of something that's currently happening. And it's when you're, yes. you're constantly pushing that, that is when you run into trouble because you start telling player stories that people don't care about. I think um, you have to have equ- equity with the audience if you want to get away with long-form content all the time or giving your opinions on everything. Uh, and only a few people have built that because people haven't been around long enough for that to happen. So like Richard, he'll write a 3,000-word piece and that will get read by shit tons of people and shared by loads of people. But that's because he's built up equity and reputation and trust and kind of legitimacy with the audience. Whereas a lot of us writers, I've been around for like just over three years now. Um, there are a lot, a lot of people who've can... been in it 15, 20 years like him. I'll also read Richard's things because I know that he's not going to hold any punches. Now, with that being Mm -hmm. said, he might be a little more editorialized, but I know when I read his piece, it's going to have some insights and his personal thoughts and is going to be illuminating in some way. And so that's, I'll always look on that. And that gets kind of back to what we were saying at the top, where it's very difficult for young journalists to feel empowered to make those calls, Mm -hmm. but it's also imperative for them to start building a reputation as a journalist worth reading and worth listening to. I agree. Uh, So... I got to wrap up this show in the next 10 minutes. So I want to go rapid fire because I've got a couple. I've got three <laughs> questions to work for you. And I know we could talk about this all day, but I have a call with Nerd Street Gamers in 13 minutes. So Ooh, I got to. Well, that's about. Yeah, it's going to be a little interesting. Um, <laughs> so first question for you, Adam. What needs to change in this industry from the top? Oh, God. Um, the people. <laughs> we need better people people who understand media and people who understand internet culture more as opposed to suits who like uh, you can hire people under you but if the suits are the people calling uh, calling the shots and they don't really understand what's what then it's gonna just tr- bullshit's just gonna trickle down from the top and the mismanagement's gonna occur yeah we we've certainly seen it i'll throw in as well uh we <laughs> talked about how podcasts can be very q a please stop writing q a's um articles i know it's a requirement for a lot of places and sometimes the person like it's the only form they'll do it in um and sometimes you have a word count to hit i get it uh please stop just asking five questions and publishing their entire response with like light editing i'm sorry it's just not it's it's not very light esports 101 thing in it when someone's very new and then they realize oh wait i can build this into a narrative piece and still use the answers oh yeah (laughs) it's like that's like a, a graduation thing in esports journalism like you know you've uh, advanced to the next level once you stop doing q a's absolutely absolutely and i know <laughs> a lot of people are under requirements to like hey hit a certain amount of like words hit a certain amount of articles and you might have to do q a's to get there but yeah please uh don't <laughs> uh, it's it's just not compelling content like i'm sorry people don't learn anything from it mm-hmm. and and when you're not when it when it's so structured like that it's very clear that there isn't any follow-up to whatever they say and so they're basically getting off you know, it, it, you could tell the ones that do have follow up because the questions are like, wait, expand on this or whatever. But a lot of times yeah. I see them, it's just like, here are five questions. I came up with them previously. Here are the answers. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's as compelling. All right, Adam, question number two. What has changed in the years that you've been doing this? So about three, four years for you now, about the same as me. What has changed in those years you've seen? Um, That is a very good question. I think... Ah, oh, Jesus. In in the media, esports media landscape as a whole. Yeah, if you want to expand it out yeah. to esports and the industry and its impacts. 
Hmm. That's a very good question. I mean, we've seen a lot, just a lot of coming and going, right? And I think instability and unpredictability is probably my kind of themes because no, I don't think we've reached the final form of what esports is and realized exactly how it'll thrive just yet. So with that, there's a lot of experimentation and with that, there's a lot of failure. So we see a lot of companies coming and going, whether it's an organization or whether it's a publication. And, um, and, and with that, hopefully some lessons to be learned from each one, I hope. And, and that will hopefully help us moving forward to make less mistakes or at least improve upon what we've done in the past, whether that actually materializes. Um, you, the jury's out on that one, I guess. But I, I'd, I'd say just when we're less professional and more professional at once, uh, I don't think <laughs> uh, I don't think investment necessarily means we're grown up as an industry. I think maybe it just means we've got a bit more money behind the bullshit that we do. <laughs> I, I don't disagree there. Yeah, that's the very similar to what I think has changed. I came out of school in 2017, which is like the height of the esports gold rush, the creation of the Overwatch League, uh, people paying millions uh-huh. of dollars for spots in a league that was ostensibly going to succeed theoretically every single the nfl the nhl the nba all announcing their own esports leagues and it was like oh everything's amazing this is huge and uh i came into it with that perspective like wow i would be part of the next big thing and as i've learned more and more about the industry i've learned more and more like okay the nba 2k league gets ten thousand viewers it's not justifying mm-hmm. the investment by nba teams the overwatch no. league is is in serious danger and now you have to start the the entire attitude towards it, where it was very pie in the sky when I started, and I know a lot of other people were like hesitant at the time, but for me as a new journalist was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. I want to talk about all the great stories happening in this space. And uh, for me, what's changed is like you need to recognize what isn't working, what what is really important to talk mm-hmm. about. Uh, and there's for quite sure. a few things that, that aren't working, that that money invested was not mm-hmm. going to the right places necessarily. And, uh, for sure. Like one of my favorite observations actually that I've made about the industry since I've been in it is um, every year we say in 10 years, esports will be huge. And then a year goes by and it's still in 10 years will be huge. A year goes by <laughs> in 10 years will be huge. And like be huge. We're, we're stuck in like just some infinite <laughs> loop of in 10 years will be massive, but like the, the timer, the clock's not actually ticking down at all. So that suggests to me, we're not ready to be huge yet. <laughs> we're nowhere near no. that yet, at least narrative-wise. Like we're we're not realizing the potential that we saw ten years ago, and and thus and it progress is slower than what we thought. It took every single sports league fifty years mm-hmm. to to become a massive property. Like you could trace the roots of of the NBA, the NFL to like nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, and it didn't become a a financial powerhouse until the eighties and the nineties. So it's like you. These things take a while to really grow and cement themselves. And esports has always put itself on a much quicker timeline that mm-hmm. uh, is just not, it's not going to live up to, to your point. We're, we're trying to emulate sports, but we're using all of their lower revenue generating activities and not their larger ones. So, so it's like, <laughs> yeah, no sports, meteorites. This, no, but... no, yeah, exactly. These, these sporting leagues grew massive because of like, media rights and broadcast deals ostensibly especially like the premier league in the uk for example and then we don't really have that because we're online um and we just shun facebook and youtube whenever they try to buy the rights to a um a tournament so we're actually just cut our nose off to spite our face in that sense 
140 million is like what the Pacific Northwest pays to be able to broadcast Blazer games. And it's also <laughs> what the Activision Blizzard paid for uh, or got paid for the Overwatch and Call of Duty leagues for three years. Like it's mm-hmm. the, the there's such a massive disparity in how much money is it's because it, it you don't get paid for anything like you, you don't know mm-hmm. esports person has to watch any sort of content and that probably has to change at some point but it probably won't based on my conversations with uh ceos and, and different people so that's going to be a fascinating thing and it's why we see esports organizations consistently moving to create their own content because they're not yeah. monetizing the content that's being created by the developers uh and so they're fine. So final question for you. We've sort of covered this. I hope for I hope young journalists or content creators are listening to this. What advice do you have for a young journalist listening to the show who wants to work in esports media? Uh, just be prolific. That's all. I, 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 and people care more about you being prolific than than perfect, or at least you should care about that. I mean, you can you can work so hard on one piece that you kind of like just fall out of love with it and then become disillusioned with it and don't put anything out. Whereas, uh, say you spend, I don't know, three hours on one article and you're self-publishing, you're just starting out. You could have created three articles, one per hour in that time and probably progress quicker and sharpen your tool set as such quicker um, rather than trying to just perfect this one thing when you don't even know what perfect is. Perfect doesn't even exist. And if you're new, you really don't know what's what. So stop trying to to put your best foot forward in that sense and put your best foot forward in, in just learning. And that, that requires um, reading a lot, writing a lot, failing a lot, not getting many viewers and, and learning from that process. And I, I'm not aware of any other activity you can do which skips that step unless you're just naturally very good. But that's a slim chance, especially in like the, the art of journalism. If it's just writing, okay, you might have a natural um, kind of inclination towards it. But actual journalism... And um, forming opinions, sound pieces and such, like that takes time. And I don't think anything can replace it. So I just say work, work, work. Um, Don't let perfection be the enemy of progression, I think is a a popular quote that gets chucked about. And I think it's very true. Uh, I absolutely agree. I think it's the hardest thing to get trapped into is spending so much time on things that just aren't you know, aren't, aren't, aren't very good, probably. Yes. Like, that's yes. that's just the reality of it. Um, the other thing I would I would advise is spend the time on research. Uh, you don't want to be the person who, uh, from the first two paragraphs, it's very clear they don't know what they're talking about. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to not gonna call anybody, but I've seen enough articles where I'm like, what? what? I know you're talking about me here, and I don't appreciate it. Oh, of it. course, Adam. Of course. You're, <laughs> you're, that's why you didn't win Journalist of the Year. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. oh wow you've just brought my ptsd is flooding right now no you're 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 a fantastic journalist adam and you're one oh, of my greatest you, friends in this industry and i appreciate you coming on to the final show of the esports network podcast one last word from you what do you want people watching out for look at do following from you i mean if people want business content from esports and content creators and influencers and stuff then they can follow me by adam fitch and everyone should congratulate mitch on a con con I don't, I'm trying to conflate 17 words to make it sound amazing, but I'll just say a great <laughs> run with this podcast. And uh, obviously, I wish you the best of luck moving forward at Nerd Street. Uh, just when you blow up and become huge, do not forget about me, please. I will never, Adam. You got me to where <laughs> I am today. You've been one of my greatest friends through this time and one of the people I've been able to talk through so much of this esports industry, this crazy thing we call uh, esports through over the last few years, just sort of. 
a soundboard for wait is what the hell is going on out here and that's mm-hmm. really really beneficial uh in this, in this crazy you, industry i appreciate you as well to all our listeners this has been an absolute blast literally the esports minute the esports network podcast are the two my two favorite things i have done in esports media up until this point i'm really excited for a new adventure but i want to cap off uh this show with just thanking you all for listening to these shows for making these shows successful uh for coming sharing your insights if you want to follow me i'd appreciate it i'm at mitch underscore reams it's linked underneath this show if you listen to 195 episodes and are haven't followed me i think it's uh the least you could do probably is uh is follow me up see where i'm going next i'm not entirely sure where these podcasts are going i know they're looking for new hosts i imagine there's going to be a hiatus as they as they look for them uh, but I hope you all enjoyed this show, the insights. I hope it made you laugh or just gave you something to think about. Um, and for this esports media publication, if I pissed you off, I'm sorry. Or if we pissed you off, well, we didn't mean anything by it, except we probably kind of did. Uh, we appreciate <laughs> everybody in this industry and all know that all we'd want is the best for everybody in esports and for this uh, weird thing we call an industry. So that's it. I don't know how to sign off my final esports network podcast, but that's about it. Thanks all. I appreciate you.